Welcome to Attention to Detail, the classical music listening guide, where we give you the tools to understand, appreciate, and enjoy listening to classical music. Hey, welcome back to Attention to Detail. This is Hannah Ruffett with the ISO, joined again with Jacob Joyce. Hey, Jacob. Hey, Hannah. How's it going? We, uh, we had an exciting week. We just closed up our... Uh... Our classical season. Yeah, are you as tired as I am? I am pretty tired, although not a lot of time to be tired because we're starting our summer season and and I have a concert next week, so yeah, got to get it going. Tell the listeners very briefly what you'll be conducting next week. Next week I'm doing, uh, the first half is all Mozart, what I think maybe is Mozart's best piece ever, Symphonia Concertante, which is a Concerto for violin and viola. Our principal violist is is playing the viola part, and we have a guest violinist mm-hmm. coming. And the second half is going to be selections from Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet, which is one of my all time favorite pieces, and Liszt Les Preludes, which is it's going to be great for an outdoor concert. It's going to be really nice. Yeah, I'm, excited. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So let's dive right in with our episode today. We're going to be starting our series on live performance, and this is going to be the first of three episodes. And we're going to be talking about what to listen for in in live performance and uh, listening to the piece versus listening to the performance. So, Jacob, can you give us a a head start on this? Yeah. So the idea in in this series now is that we're going to, talk for the next three episodes about listening to live performance. If we think if we, we think about music, music is a performance art like like drama, like um, dance. Uh, and so there's gonna be what we've talked about up till this point is mostly listening to the music itself. So the notes that are written on the page by whatever composer, we haven't. We've kind of treated the performance as a given, and we've been talking about how to create interpretations, how to build our skills of listening to music itself. But that is something that you can do in the privacy of your own home. You can you can uh, listen to on a recording, and of course, recordings capture a certain element of of live performance, but they're one snapshot. And we're going to talk in the next three episodes about how to listen to this performance element of of music not not so much the the piece that's being presented but how the performers are recreating that piece and so we're going to be focusing more on that phenomenon of how to listen to the recreative act than how to listen to the the music itself so when you say uh, discussing the difference between listening to the piece and the performance, are you saying that those two are separate from each other? To a certain extent. I mean, when I often find that when I am listening to a performance, I switch between. And as I get to know a piece better and better, I listen more and more to the performance mm. and less and less to the piece itself. If I'm hearing a piece for the first time, I'd say that I focus about 90% of my energy on hearing that music yeah. just by itself because they are really two somewhat separate processes. And so it's very hard to do both, I think, at exactly the same time. Yeah. As we go through this series, we'll discuss where some of the overlap may be. But it is certainly the case that 
as you get to be a more experienced listener and as you learn music better, the reason why, part of the reason why people keep coming back and listening to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony over and over again is that every live performance is different. Yeah. But if you know that piece, you kind of know what to expect. And so you know what's what's coming. You're listening more to the performance itself. And that's one thing I want to mention broadly about listening to performance in general, which is that when you're evaluating someone's performance, when you're trying to form an interpretation about how the performers have realized this work, it really plays with your expectations and what actually happens, much like we've been talking about when you're listening to music itself. But in this sense, you if you know a piece particularly well and you're listening to the performance, you know what's coming. Yep. It's like having read a book several times. You know how the plot ends. You know what the main events are. The difference is that you don't know exactly how the performers are going to recreate that. There are mm-hmm. certain things that you know you're going to hear. There's room for analyzation. Yeah, and, and you know, you will hear, as long as they play all the right notes, you'll hear the same notes. Yeah. As long as they play everything that's marked how loud it should be, how short it should be in the score, you'll hear that. But there's a huge amount of room within that where you'll hear different things. And so what we're going to talk about in the next three episodes is what those things are that you'll hear that differ from the music itself. So, Jacob, you've uh, broke down the listening experience to a live performance into three broad elements, and those are technical execution, musical decisions, and artistry. Give us a a heads up on what those three things are. Yeah, so... These and these are by no means the the only categories that one can break listening a performance into, but this is kind of how I've chosen to to approach it, and we'll cover these topics in our next three episodes. But as you mentioned, there's kind of the, the technical execution that goes into a performance, the musical decisions that a performer makes, and the kind of artistry individuality that that performers bring to a performance. So when I talk about technical execution, which is our topic for today, I'm thinking about the actual sound quality that a performer makes, the their ability simply to play the notes. Mm. If, if it's a challenging piece, there's a lot of notes, just their ability to do that and yeah. their ability to do that in a virtuosic, impressive way. Their control over... You know, can they play in a variety of different styles, sounds, uh, articulations? All of those things go into actual technical execution. So if we think about maybe other art forms, um, I think of, for example, there's this painter I love, Jan van Eyck, who is this Dutch painter who, if you've ever seen... Um, there's another, like, there's this whole school of Dutch painters. Hieronymus Bosch is another one. They would paint these incredibly tiny paintings Mm. that when you put your face right up close, there is this impeccable, remarkable detail in these paintings where it just looks like a photograph. That kind of is what I think of as, like, pure technical execution. Mm. You know, that is the most immaculate skill with the paintbrush, and they're able to paint these incredibly detailed things, create different colors with their palette, you know, 
that's what I think of in terms of technical execution. It's also like a lot of sports, you know, you're simply your ability to put the ball in the back of the net or something like that. That's, that's the technique. Then we have what we might call musical decisions that performers make. So when a performer confronts a musical score, there's all this information there and there's all this information that's not there. You know, the, the composer specifies the notes, the composer specifies the loudness. Most of the time they specify the length of the notes. All this kind of stuff is on the page. What's not on the page is occasionally there are some emotional descriptors. Occasionally there are some character descriptors. But what's not on the page is how the composer was feeling, mm. the story that's being tried to... The sto- composer might be trying to tell the shape to which this piece should take. Often there's not an exact tempo or speed as to what you should take. And so those all come into, those are all musical decisions that the performer needs to make and that will differ from performance to performance simply because they're not specified. Yeah. And I think of... That's so much like acting. Yeah, I, I think mean, of you, acting. If you read a script, and especially of a, of, a, of a play that you have never seen before that is not widely known, so you don't know what the characters are like, the script can be very sparse, and yeah. the character descriptions might be one one line. She, right. Character X is 20 years old, and she is spunky, and that's all you know. And yeah. so you're reading through, and it says character X walks across the room. How does a spunky person walk across the room? So right. that character is developed from the actor that is cast in that role, but then also in conjunction with the other actors yeah. in that play and with the director. And a lot of times the the costumer can help with that, with True. development of character. So, And that's I, I want to point out that that's, that's kind of... There's two things here which we'll cover in two separate episodes. Yeah. If we take the acting analogy, what I think of in terms of the musical decisions is... Something like the, the director, the actors themselves, but I think more of the director, the yeah. set designer, the costume designer here. These people that are confronted with, yeah, I think of Shakespeare, for example. Mm. There's no real set description nope. of like, maybe there's a city, it's set in Verona, but you don't know how to construct the set. Yeah, or it'll just say forest. Right, exactly. Okay. Yeah, what kind of forest? <laughs> yeah. Um, same exact phenomenon happens in music, and so it's up to the director, the set designer, all these kind of people, yeah. to realize a creative vision. And that that's what I think of in terms of musical decisions. Mm. Then there's the actual individuality artistry that one brings. In, in music, I think of things like sound quality, because, of course, you have to create a good sound when you make music, but there are many good sounds. Mm. And a composer, when there's a nice solo for a woodwind instrument, they don't say, they usually don't say, use this sound. And even if they do, they might put an adjective, but the player is left to interpret what does that mean. There's a famous Copeland clarinet solo in Appalachian Spring where it says white sound. Mm. What does that mean? I mean, we, we can think that that might be a little pale, it might, but there's still a million ways to interpret that. could mean pure. Pure, yeah. right. And, and how do you create... Again, that's yeah. just another adjective. What's a pure sound? Yeah. Um, the, the special individual moments that a, a, 
an individual musician or a group of musicians can make. That's all what I group into this last category of sort of artistry. And that, to take our acting analogy, is, is probably like the individual actor themselves. Yeah. You know, taking an extra little, either in the moment or planned, feeling like there, there's the time for a little extra pause mm. or there's a little extra declamation. I mean... Or just their interpretation of the character. Exactly. Directly comes from their own personal experiences through life or, or what they feel or think about themselves in relation to the character that they're playing. Are they similar to that character? Or are they very different? Right. Have and we experience similar, similar things in our storylines? It's true. And that's, I think, and that's the distinction between these last two categories. The, the musical decisions mm-hmm. are, are things that they're kind of larger decisions that one makes when you're confronted with a piece of artwork and you have to recreate it. The artistry comes from a certain amount of spontaneity that, that results from live performance, that it's individualistic, it might be unique to the moment, that's what makes, that's really the one that I think makes live, live performance the most exciting, is that it changes every time. But those are the, the three categories that, that we'll discuss in today's and future episodes. Sweet. So today we're going to get to the, the meat and potatoes of the episode, and we're going to start with two special guests from the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra, uh, Roger Rowe and Kent Cook, and we're going to begin talking about uh, technical execution. Uh, Roger and Kate, would you like to introduce yourselves? Welcome. Thanks. My name's Roger Rowe. I play oboe and English horn with the ISO, and I teach oboe and English horn at Indiana University. Hi, I'm Kent Cook. I teach piano at Illinois Wesleyan University, and I play sometimes with the Indianapolis Symphony in the piano yeah. and celeste. So I wanted to start by asking you guys, you are both, as you mentioned, teachers as well as performers, and we're talking today about the technique of playing an instrument, making music, you know, singing could fall under this category as well, but but the actual technical execution that it takes to create music from something that's on a page. Can you talk about some of the... When you think about teaching your students and you think about teaching technique as opposed to some other things like like musicality or artistry, what are some of the main areas of technique that, that you focus on that come into play when, when someone's playing an instrument? The very first thing for me is about making a beautiful sound and how you do that, and what the components are of that. Every student that I accept at Indiana, we've, we always ask all of our prospective students to sing a phrase or two from the piece that they're playing, and that gives us a big idea of what their internal voice is like, like what the music is they have going through their heads, and how able they are to make that come out of their instrument, um, which shows a lot of technical ability. So we often use the term technique to mean fast notes or technically challenging passages or passages where you have lots of notes, but the actual technique of playing the instrument is can you make a beautiful sound, can you recognize that sound, and can you make the instrument do the things that that you want it to do? Mm-hmm. Again, that internal voice that you have, if I have you sing a tune, mm-hmm. and then can you make your instrument sing that same tune right. in that same way? That is very that's helpful to cut through people who can make their instruments sound kind of good but don't have a natural internal musicianship going in their own ear 
Um, so I, we usually we have the great luxury of not accepting those students, even if they're really good and they get into other good schools. We're probably not going to teach them. We're not the right fit for them because we only teach can you make a beautiful sound and then everything else comes after that. Wow, that's incredible. It's, it's probably, like it stems from like the musicality of the individual. It's a little different as a pianist. Uh, I think about, of course, I teach on the college level, but I think about when I'm teaching young children and they approach the piano, they can make a sound. They don't have to worry about a vibrato or intonation or air. They just can, can push yeah. a note down and they get the actual note. Mm. And when you talk to people who've maybe taken some piano, uh, they think about scales. Technique is yep. scales. But we have to start somewhere, learning how to put notes into groups or patterns, and how do we make our fingers make notes go together. Yep. And so from a young age, I think a lot of people separate technique and musicality. But as a, as a musician yeah. matures, those things start to come together. I can remember in, in grad school where the teacher would say, well, there's no separation of technique and musicality. Yeah. Technique just means being able to play what you imagine the sound should be and, and having total command of your instrument. Mm. But that's usually many years going from, I'm starting to learn this instrument, to I have command, total command of an instrument. Wow. So it's, I think as you, as you progress through your training as a musician, those two things, technique and musicality, merge. But I think they start often separately. There's also a big aspect of technique in any art form that is about doing your fundamentals in a daily way, probably for your entire life, so that you can keep and continue to challenge yourself to that level of artistry and, and excellence. So when you talk to a dancer about technique, they'll talk about ballet technique versus modern technique. If you talk to an actor, they have all these different exercises that they do. If you're a painter, your technique is what enables you to bring your vision of the artwork into reality. So for us, it's, as Kent was describing, scales, arpeggios, thirds, fourths, long tones, up intervals, down intervals. I mean, we have a million exercises to do that enable then in the rehearsal and in the concert the ability to not think about what you have to do to make it come out. Right, and I, I, I think one, one kind of distinction for our listeners, because we're going to do three episodes on different elements of listening to live performance, maybe the way to most clearly look at this, as you said, as you, as you get more advanced, the, the lines between technique and musicality seem to blur a little bit, but if you had a hypothetical person who had all the technique in the world and really no musicality, the idea would be that, I mean, if we, if we really boil technique down to what it is, it's, it's the ability to make the notes that you see on the page happen in a way that you believe they should happen, right? And so yeah. if you have no musicality, you may not know what to do in any way with those notes, but, but the technique is... And you do all these fundamental exercises, you do scales, you do long tones, all this stuff, so that you have more ability to realize your own internal motivation, right? And then there's, a, there's an entirely separate element of what is your internal motivation, what's your musicality, what's that, so that, that, that also comes into play. Now, I also I wanted to ask you guys, because you, you mentioned briefly, Roger, you play the oboe, can't you play the piano, very different instruments, when we hear music, music is is music. If you're presented with, you two could be presented with exactly the same notes on a page, 
and that's music and and th- but the way you realize them will be very different the the way that you're able to get some things will be easier on the oboe than the piano for example we we already mentioned the piano doesn't have the ability to sustain as as other instruments do the piano you can play incredibly fast and virtuosic on whereas that's much more difficult on the oboe talk a little bit about how much of this technique development comes from working with your specific instrument, the difficulties that it poses, and how much of that is just simply because no instrument is perfect and there are challenges to getting the music out? Well, I'll start with this one because an interesting thing about the piano is, as a pianist, you don't usually carry your piano with you. And so when you go to a venue or where you're playing, you have to adjust to that particular piano, and all pianos are a little bit different. So there comes this this adjustment time, like mm-hmm. learning to move your fingers fast, but... Yes, on any instrument, and with different... I don't want to get too technical here, but um, I had a teacher one time tell me that some people jump high, some people run fast, some people's fingers just move fast, Mm. right? But we're all after the same goal, to be able to play something effortlessly, right? Mm. And um, the key to technical, I guess, I don't want to say perfection, but excellence... For some people, they've, they've learned that repetition, just doing it over and over, is one of the solutions. But if you have good teaching and if you have an imaginative mind, and, and Jacob mentioned this a minute ago, that there are various solutions to solving technical problems. And as you get older, some of those solutions may be musical, and sometimes those are the best ones. But at, at an early level, before you can synthesize all of this, uh, you figure out, different ways to practice and I think that's what I'm getting at how do you how do you get your muscles your fingers to move efficiently easily hmm. so that it becomes um, effort I don't want to say effortless but it becomes something that feels natural yeah it becomes something that the audience and even the people around you can't tell is difficult even if it feels that's difficult to you that's or key. even if you had to spend lots of time on it and so on the oboe, we have a ton of things just like, how do I breathe? What parts of my body do I use to breathe? Where is my tongue and my mouth? What does my throat feel like? We have a lot of physical, mechanical stuff. And reed making is a huge aspect of this, of course, for us, because we make our own reeds out of... What is a reed? What is a reed? <laughs> for those question. of you who don't know, the oboe is a double reed instrument, which means we take basically like a tube of cane, like bamboo, and we put it through all these machines and process it down and fold it over onto a little tube of metal and cork, tie it on with a thread, and then we scrape it, and it has to vibrate in a very specific way. So it's incredibly specific and detailed, and we teach classes on it, and we study it in school forever, and it's kind of one of the only things left that is a sort of master and apprentice you sit next to me while I do this tiny woodworking sculpture thing with a super sharp knife where I'm taking mm. off a microscopic amount of cane and then I'll play it and then I'll have you play it and we'll both go for the same sound and I'll talk about what my tongue is doing and what my what my embouchure is doing. The embouchure is where the way you form your lips around the reed, blah, blah, blah. I can go on forever. Insane. And, yeah. And so a huge part of it for us is literally every day. Like, if the read is really good, you don't have to think about it, and you can just play and listen and respond. But if you're managing the read all the time, 
it subtracts a little from that. So in terms of the technical execution, yeah. becomes harder when your equipment. That's what Kent was talking about. Like some pianos will get stuck on an F sharp, doesn't repeat as quickly as another piano. I played a recital one time. It was a Prelude and Fugue by Mendelssohn in E minor, mm. and the middle E stuck. So every time I would play it, I had to figure out a way to make it yeah. push it back up Whoa. so I could play it again. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> That's an extreme oh example of a non-working piano. But. Well, Hannah, I wanted to ask you. I mean, you've worked here for two and a half years. Did you have any idea that this this level of uh, detail and I mean it's crazy right? I knew that reed making was very tedious and that a lot of time and effort w- went into it but not to the extent of I am thinking about it at all times and, and trying to develop it and, and be aware of the atmospheric pressure exactly, yeah. <laughs> like okay we, we took an example of an instrument that's, that's a particularly challenging one but, but there are 70 people on stage who are also dealing with yeah. uh, similar things. And this is one thing that I, uh, to, to again make it a little more more broad and, and to deal with kind of technique in, its, in the abstract, I don't think people often think about the fact that, as you said, that the, the key was sticking on this piano. This is wood and metal and stuff that we're using to try to produce music it's actually a very very imperfect process and so in a way that is again like it's we we've discussed this already on our podcast um that we now have or a variation of this we now have computers that can produce a440 which we all tune to at a perfect sound you can change it to any timbre that you want but Something there's there, there's somehow still some sort of value added to kind of having these imperfections, but also have humans dealing with these imperfections and, and creating a sound. That's absolutely the reason people go to concerts. That's yeah. the reason that I do is to experience this human spirit filled, real life, authentic thing, which is people creating this incredibly complicated, dense, multi-layered, personal art form, live, in real time, accidents can happen, amazing things can happen, mm-hmm. one night this person could have their best night ever, and the next night they can crash and burn, I've done that. It's how do people <laughs> respond, right? How do I respond to that key stuck can I keep going? Does it freak me out so much that I get super nervous and I, and I can't keep going? The, and and do, does the community of other people on stage help and support and work with me through that? Like just the other night, I noticed that Jennifer got water under one of her keys. And and I thought, okay, so I, can, I know we have that note in unison coming up and I can play mine a little bit fuller because I bet she's going to leave it out. You know, you're, <laughs> you're doing that all the wow. time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, and it's true. And I think that's... You know, again, we've been up till this point primarily discussing m- music itself on the podcast, and we've, we, I mean, we've, we obviously believe in the value of live performance, but, but we haven't really discussed um, why it is that there's a benefit to going to a concert versus just listening to a recording in your home, and that's why we're doing this series now. Is that there's a whole other element of music being a performance art that we want to be able to listen to. So there's there's another thing that I want to talk about 
in relation to live performance, which is that I think one thing that everyone appreciates when you watch uh, people who really excel at the top of their fields in anything, there is an element simply of, uh, and I've and I've heard this from from patrons often here, other places that one of the first reactions they often have is that's so amazing that they're able to do that. You know, the, 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 just the human ability that it takes. And I think that's something that we should tell our listeners is a perfectly acceptable thing to watch, appreciate, listen to when you go to a concert is simply to be amazed and impressed at, at the, the ability of the performers. And that's, that is, I think something that people can see, pretty quickly and, and right off the bat is that this is a challenging thing. So I want to ask you both a little bit about, maybe Kent, we can start with you because you are a pianist. Talk a little bit about what it takes to, to, to learn the piano, but also to prepare for a concert. I, I, I want to go to you first because pianists probably practice the most of, of any sort of instrumentalist or musician at all. So talk a little bit about what it actually takes to get to that place where you step out on stage and, and you play a piece. So simplistic, simplistically, I, was, I think back to school when people talked about the pianists practicing the most, it's because we have the most notes. We mm-hmm. have like so many, you know, you have both hands going and you have lots of layers. It's not just a melody, but you're also supplying the harmony. And depending on the composer, per measure, you can have, we talked about Rachmaninoff, you know, dozens and dozens of notes in a beat, but yeah. there's just so many layers that you have as a pianist that you have to worry about just learning the notes. Before you can actually think about the phrasing, you have to just get the notes in your fingers, and just it just takes many hours. Um, the next layer to that, once you've practiced for many years and you've, you've uh, increased your ability at the instrument and you're working on harder pieces yeah. as you move along... So, so you get a new hard piece. Say you're playing with the orchestra and you get an orchestra piece that has a particularly difficult piano part. So you look at it and you kind of gauge, this is going to take me this amount of time to learn. It reminds me of something I, someone asked me a few years ago, someone that knows me from around town, and they said, well, you're already good at the piano. Why do you need to practice anymore? <laughs> and I just thought, well, because you get a new piece and you're encountering sometimes patterns or physical approaches you've never seen before. And you just got to learn the notes, digest the notes, and then get to the place where you're comfortable and able to make music. So uh, a famous orchestral piece with a big piano part is Petrushka. Yeah. So if you've never played it before and you all of a sudden you're going to play Petrushka, you want to be sure you have several months out to get the notes learned, get comfortable with it. So when you show up for the first rehearsal, you're not thinking about anything other than, okay, I'm going to play with the group. Mm -hmm. You know. So I would say for some of the more difficult... Uh, pieces, and, and we're not even talking about solo repertoire here, we're talking about orchestral music, which is a form of chamber music. Yeah. You know, a couple months out for a difficult piece is not unrealistic. Yeah. You know, to feel mastery and ease. Right, and I, I wanted to ask you both because, Kent, you mentioned, you know, you're already good at the instrument. Why, why do you have to practice? Talk about, I'm just curious how long you guys think it would take you per day, per week, whatever, to simply maintain your level of playing. Because I think one thing that people don't quite realize is it's not quite like riding a bike when you're trying to operate at peak performance. I mean, people, if they've worked out intensely, if they've played athletics, you know, it's one thing to be decently healthy and in shape. 
to be able to consistently run a five minute mile or whatever, that's that's the equivalent of what we're trying to do on a daily basis as professional musicians. How much would it take to simply just maintain your technique? I'm curious. It's for me, the key has been develop a really good warm up routine that I know is both maintenance and growth. Mm-hmm. So my teacher was really good about this and I make all of my students do this and at Indiana we're very specific about what are you doing to warm up on a daily basis? Which exercises are you doing and what are they helping you to maintain or solve or get better at? Mm. So I have to do that for myself too. I have like a 20 to 30 minute routine that I do before I touch the reeds at all. I mean, I have to touch them to make the sound, but then if I'm if I'm thinking about anything other than warming up my embouchure, warming up my air, warming up my tongue, warming up my fingers, and what do I... So for me, that's a 20 or 30 minutes right off the bat before I do anything else at all. If I'm playing both oboe and English horn, then I have to do that on both instruments, so that's 40 to 50 minutes in the morning before I do any of the, like, which reeds am I going to use today, and then that's another half hour. And then if I'm learning or working on something new... I'm practicing for at least two or three hours on that later in the day. But if the orchestra is in rehearsal all day, then that two or three hours at night usually turns into one hour at night because yeah. I have to kind of get ready for the next day. <laughs> so that's all, about, as Kent's describing, that's all about just looking far enough ahead. With you, it's complete. Like, you guys practice so much. I can't well, even pianists, it's not like singers or other instruments where you do have to take breaks. I mean, pianists are known for being able to practice many hours at a time and without getting tired you have to be careful when you're playing really physical stuff but for us it's the mental break you need a break just because to clear your your brain Mm -hmm. so that you can actually think because you shouldn't be practicing with the brain turned off that makes no sense right technically or musically it's fascinating and i mean i think we were we were talking about the relationship between this and and sports specifically because i mean i think people that's an analogy that that people might be able to appreciate. It's it's different, obviously. Most athletics is is more of the gross motor skills. Most music making is more of the fine motor skills, although um, there's, of course, overlap in both directions. But uh, talk a little bit about... We were talking just before we turned on the mic about um, figure skating. That's something that relates to music in a certain way and that... Uh, there's clearly this technique that we can appreciate there that's just, uh, you have to be, you can see a figure skater and you know you're not just good at that and so you don't have to practice. That's something that you have to maintain hours and hours and hours a day. So there used to be an event in Olympic skating called School Figures that they got rid of that I think was a big mistake. They should have kept it, which was in the preliminary competition, you had to go out on the ice and trace figures on the ice that would be do a circle on the inside edge. Do a figure eight where you switch edges. This is on inside. This is on outside left. Whoa. And it was completely like play an F major scale at quarter note equals 80 and you're playing eighth notes. Go. Yeah, and it, right. And, it, and it, it just that, and yeah. that tells you a whole lot. Right? Does he have perfect edge control when he pivots from that circle to that circle? Can he yeah. make that pivot just right? 
they got rid of it because it's not sexy and it's boring. And there were people who. Oh, that would be cool to watch, though. Yeah, I'm, I'm such a nerd not, about those. Not things. cool to watch unless you really want unless to. Unless you know. Unless you yeah, know. Yeah, I guess that's true. She bobbled a tiny bit because at that level, everybody can basically play an F major scale. In audition taking, I talked to my students about figure skating as in. You don't want to just win the bronze medal. Right. You don't want to just be the Czech national champion, which is a huge honor, right, by the way. If you're the best in all of the Czech country of figure skaters, that's a big deal. Yeah. You have to work hard to get that. If you want to win an orchestra job on the oboe, you need to be winning the gold medal. Right. Yeah. And so here are the little tiny things that will increase both your technical execution score and your artistic score yeah. so that you get the number one ranking from as many judges as possible. Yeah. And so I do separate it. I hate to say I do sometimes say artistic execution, <clears throat> beautiful, I loved it. Technical execution, this, these are the areas for growth. Yeah. I think that's good, though, because I think that's one thing that we want um, – to make the process of listening to live performance a little easier for some of our listeners. I think that's that's a way to break down some of these, at least for, especially for people who are new to listening and new to listening to live performance. You can listen for that kind of technique score, if you want to call it that, and that artistry score. And to take figure skating as an analogy, I think it's pretty easy to see that there's def- there's there's overlap in figure skating too. I mean, you can tell like, like you were talking about technique, you, there's there's people who you see who can execute their fundamentals. They can keep their edge very well. There are people who do that gracefully, um, which which plays into their artistry score. But that's one way to separate it, like figure skating, is that occasionally, if we're listening to them as slightly separate things, you can see a figure skater who... I always think back to I don't I don't know which Olympics it was maybe it was the last one there was the South Korean figure skater who got the silver medal and the right. young Russian who got the gold medal and many people were upset because the young Russian who won was kind of a robot but just technically masterful mm. the South Korean didn't do as many incredibly difficult jumps but she had this fantastic artistry. And so people were beside themselves because artistry is, I think, considered the, the, the granddaddy of, but yeah. But the same thing happens in piano competitions when you, know, you get to the top level and they're all really great, yeah. but then you have a winner that comes out because technically they, they you know, were, didn't miss notes or they were stronger technically and the mo- more musical person might sometimes come in second or third and it's just always this, this discussion about which is more important, technically, or musicality, right? But neither one's really more important. It's just hard sometimes to be subjective or yeah, objective about something. They go into the whole live performance yeah. phenomenon. It yeah. becomes yeah. about personal priorities. It becomes about musical priorities. Do I value absolute note perfection, or do I value artistic expression more? If so, something sometimes has to give a little. Again, as Kent was describing, ideally you're not thinking about that stuff, but you might, I call it like 80-20. 80% of what I want to do on a concert is just pour my heart out and love this piece and be grateful to the audience and to the composer and to how beautiful that colleague sounds. But there's a good 20% of like, Here's the tip of my tongue. Let me curve that finger yeah. before this trill. Here's what I'm doing there. Uh-oh, okay, so that person feels like they're on a sharp 
read today, so I'm going to have to manage this court a little this way. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's the same way with, so I can't help but think about acting when you talk about that. Like, you need to be thinking about all your future lines coming up, and then what your uh, counterparts are doing, and then, okay, I've got this this huge line coming up, so I need to prepare for it, and I need to make sure that that's portraying off, off the stage. And I would say, for people listening in a classical music performance live, familiar familiarizing yourself with the piece is very helpful very helpful in knowing like okay this big moment is coming up watch all of these amazing musicians prepare for it oh there they go it's that yeah. I think that's my biggest recommendation for sure and I'll just say I mean we're gonna do two more episodes on various elements of artistry and musicality and so we'll continue discussing this but but it is something that all of our listeners can bring to the concert hall when they when they come and try to listen to a live performance is what are their priorities uh, do they do they value the technique score more do they value the artistry score more do they and of course to to do a good job of kind of evaluating forming your own interpretation of a performance you have to listen for those things and so to the extent that you can try to listen to the technical execution that's going on i mean we have to say that as you've heard from from our, our musicians today, even for the most experienced listeners, myself included, if you go to a professional concert, Indianapolis Symphony or, or a, a orchestra of, of a similar caliber, the tech, the technical execution score per se is going to be incredibly high. Of course, you know we're we're really dealing on the absolute margins. It's like Olympic level, but it's something that you can always listen for. And even the greatest orchestras, the greatest performers make mistakes there's nothing that anyone there's there's no uh perfect player people always struggle and so that's something to listen for and hopefully in the next two episodes we'll break down a little more about about the artistry musicality side so thank you guys so much for joining us yeah delight to have you on thank you want to give a big thanks to roger and kent for joining us today uh, on our next episode, we're going to be talking about musical decisions, so keep a lookout for that next episode. Thank you so much for listening. For more information about this podcast, you can find us at attentiontodetailpod.com, where you'll find a list of techniques presented in these episodes and a two-week program for starting your own listening practice. You can also find us on all of your favorite social media channels. We encourage you to follow us, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and if you enjoy the show, please give us a rating. We hope to see you soon at a concert.